Well, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a while. We've been in a series called Faith on the Front Lines. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at wealth and money. And you could tell a lot about a person and a culture on how they spend their time and their money. So I did a little, little data gathering, um, and I discovered that the average personal debt for Americans without any mortgages is $38,000 per person of just personal debt. Um, the average American spends about $1,300 a year on, on Amazon. So when you're just surfing around, yeah, I'll, I'll grab that. We spend about $1,000 per person per year on coffee. Um, some of you probably more. And, and if you want a coffee buying experience, go with Pastor Marcus. It's a, it's a great experience at, at Starbucks. Um, we spend about $3,000 per year eating out. So... Then I started looking, well, how much do we give? Like, as a, as a people, as an American people, how much do we give to charity? Well, the average American um, gives about 2.6% of their yearly income to charity. So I thought, well, what about Christians? Because we've got to be doing better than this. You know, we're exceptional people, of course. Um, well, the average Christ, Christian gives about 2.5%, so just slightly below. Um, and that's down about 50% from about 20 years ago. Now, if you compare this into major historical events, people of the Great Depression gave more than, than we give right now. They gave 3.3% of their annual um, income. So then I thought, well, maybe Christians aren't just making that much money anymore. And as I looked, it said that Christian homes that make over $75,000 per year give out only about 1%. And so you look at these statistics and you have to ask, what is going on here? I think as we look at this, we have to be real with ourselves and realize that we bought into a lie, the, um, the lie of the American dream. And that it has a significant impact on our purpose, place, and how we use our wealth and steward our wealth. And we've forgotten that as Christians, experiencing true riches in Christ enables us to use our wealth wisely and to usher people into the kingdom of God. And we have major heart issues that we have to address this morning. So today's message is the heart of stewardship. So we're going to be looking at Luke 16. It's on the back of your bulletin. You can turn in your Bibles or click on your Bibles. So let me just give you, give you a little context here. Jesus is continuing his ministry towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And as he proceeds towards the cross, his teaching gets very poignant. And he starts addressing serious issues that the culture around him has. And what's happening around him is, um, is you have this, this, this culture where, where people are profiting off of tragedy, especially amongst the religious and cultural elite. And here Jesus addresses this in a parable. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a parable. It's a story. It doesn't always make sense completely. It's, it's as if you were to tell a story and there's lessons to be gleaned from it. And this parable is about a rich man who employed a manager, often called a steward. The, the Greek is ruler of the house. And in, in ancient times, you would have a master who would own a, a huge estate and he would put a manager or a steward in charge of that estate. He was sort of like a COO or, or CFO of a large estate. And this person own, didn't own any wealth. They just stewarded it. And anything that he did on behalf of his master was legally binding. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today and unpack that and see how this manager had some issues. 
And what I want to do this morning is look at three aspects of the heart of stewardship. So let me pray and ask God to bless this time. Father, we come to you and we entreat you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. Open our hearts. Speak to us on how the, your, your truth will apply to us today. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see is that stewardship is radically generous. Verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So it appears that this, this manager, this steward, is not doing his job correctly, and the master's asking him to give an account. Because, again, this guy doesn't own anything. He's just a steward of the master's finances, the master's money and his resources. And this idea of not owning anything and being steward, being a steward is, is very difficult at times for us to understand. And for me, the first time I really got this was when I was a young Marine. And I was living in the barracks. And the guy next to me, uh, who was in the barracks room next to me, went AWOL. He, he was uh, UA. We call it UA. And they came in there, and they took everything that was in that room. His uniforms, his furniture, everything. And I said, well, that's his stuff. They're like, no, this is the government's stuff. He's just stewarding this, 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 this uniform. He owns nothing. And for us, we are stewards of God's resources, and we own nothing. The money we have is his. The time we have is his. The resources we have are his. And God owes us nothing. But we've been bought into this lie that we deserve what we have. I mean, let's think about it. I've said this before. I work hard for what I got, and I deserve it. Perhaps you've said the same thing. Yes, you work hard with the life and the health and the provisions God has gifted you with. And we live in a fallen world, and we should be praising God for holding us together and not giving us what we really deserve. And we own nothing. It's all His. We are stewards that will have to give an account. We'll have to give an account on how we procured our resources, how we used our resources for the purpose of human flourishing. We're called to be stewards that, that, that contribute to the expansion of his kingdom, to the, 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 the goodness of humanity. And this is individually we'll have to give an account, but also corporately we'll have to give, give an account. God cares how we individually spend our, our, his money and how as a church we spend money. You've got to remember that as Jesus is addressing this, he's addressing it to a culture. He's addressing it to a Jewish nation. The, Israel was chosen by God to be a light unto the nations. He was gifted and, and, and they were gifted and given certain resources. Not because they were special, but because God just chose them. And they were called to steward these resources in order to expand his kingdom. And they were utterly failing at it. And so Jesus is calling them out on that, that heart condition. And as a church, he has, he, has, he has gifted us. We're called to be stewards of the resources that he gives us. And we're called to be radically generous in these in his resources. So individually, we're called to be radically generous. And corporately, as a church, we're called to be radically generous. And here's the thing. When we're not radically generous, we're stealing. We're stealing because it's not ours. 
I mean, this is what the master's getting upset at, or, or, or this is why the steward is getting fired, because he's basically stealing from his master. So we have to remember, we're just stewards. We're just managers of what God has gifted us. So what does the manager do here? Verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So here's this guy. He apparently doesn't have a good reputation in town on, on how he, he, he um, did his business or did the, the business of his master on behalf of his master because no one will let him into his home. And he's like, the only job I'm really qualified is to dig or to beg and being uh, someone who would dig was, was, a, was a job of a slave. And he's like, I'm not strong enough to do that, and I don't want to beg. So what does he do? Verse 5, so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? How much do you owe? A thousand. I'm sorry. A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he brings these, these, these debtors in and he says, listen, you owe my master a bunch of money. Why don't you go ahead and, 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 and fudge the books a little bit? In your handwriting, by the way. Go ahead and do that. And he cuts off, cuts off this debt. And um, by the way, this was, a, this was a, a pretty large sum of money. It's about 20 months worth of wage, wages. And so, how does the master respond to this? Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's kind of weird, right? You, you go and you're like, this is where the interpretive challenges come in. So, what's going on here? Why does the master commend him? Remember, we have to remember, first, this is a parable. So, things aren't going to exactly be a one-for-one -one understanding. But, Probably the, the right aspect or the right interpretation of this is that the dishonest manager was charging interest. So back then, you would have these managers that would charge this exorbitant amount of interest, and they would basically take that interest for themselves and pocket it. And so the manager is commending him, saying, listen, you did not collect your interest. Instead, you invested in people so that you would gain favor with them. And so he is, he is commending him on that shrewdness. So the point here is that um, is to act shrewdly, that he's commending, commending him for acting shrewdly. Then the master goes on, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus is, is making it pretty clear. He's, he's saying, listen, people with a secular mindset understand the idea of using wealth and resources to procure favor with people than do people of the light. And so we see we are stewards called to be shrewd for the purposes of being generous. And as Christians, we should be different. We should be different. But statistics show that we're really not. And some of you might say, well, I give, Brian. I give abundantly. And here's the thing. You could technically give, but not, but not be radically generous. I mean, let's face it. Sometimes we just give because we get a tax break if we give. Sometimes we give because we just think it'll make us a better person if I give. That's just what you do. You give. 
that's not being radically generous because it has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with rendering it to God. And out of anyone in the world, as Christians, we have a reason to be radically generous. I mean, I don't really get it when, when people are radically generous, just, you know, philanthropy for the sake of philanthropy, with the exception of it makes them feel good. But as Christians, we actually have an eternal reason. We have a reason to be radically generous because God showed us radical generosity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does this mean? It means we come before God and we have fallen short. And anything we do outside of Christ is nothing but dirty rags to God. We could give all we want. And, and we've fallen short, and we deserve the penalty of that. We deserve death, but yet God does not leave us in that plight. He sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a righteous and perfect life. And He's nailed to a cross, and he's die, He dies, and three days later, He's resurrected. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, yes, our sin is wiped away, but that's not it. Because now the righteousness of Christ is given to us. It's imputed to us. And when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's good news. And that's eternal. And that's forever. And that's radically generous. So we have a reason to be radically generous. Next week, we are having a day of discernment. If you're a member, I encourage you to come. Look around you. We've been blessed as a local church here. God has blessed us very much. It's exciting to, to, to come together and discern and see where, where God is leading us and how we're going to steward those resources together. So I, I invite you to come out next week. So that's the first thing. Second thing, stewardship is ra- uh, relationally motivated. Stewardship is relationally motivated. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcome, welcomed into eternal dwellings. So here we get the, this idea of this, this return on investment, this eternal return on investment, this idea of investing in people to know Jesus. And we see that wealth in our life, wealth in this world is temporary. But relationships in Christ yield an eternal return on investment. A couple weeks ago, I went to the Dana-Farber Cancer um, Institute. And there was a, a chaplain there. He's been there for 30 years. He's, he's, he's spoken to people that have, that have had cancer, have died of cancer from many different ages, many different races, ethnicities, places, you name it. And I asked him, I said, what is the one thing that these patients regret? He says, Hands down, it's not investing in relationships. They regret not re- re- investing in relationships, not reconciling, not giving it all for relationships. They, 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 all, they all say that they really built this idea of security around wealth, but they wish that they would have poured that into relationships. And we're obsessed with security. We want to be secure. And we believe this lie that financial wealth equals security. And we only want to invest in things that we think will have a solid return on investment. 
and that we could actually tangibly see, right? I mean, we got to see it. we got to see the number go up. i got to go online to see if my investment's going up. It, it, there's something inside of us, and that's security. When the number goes up, we're secure. When it goes down, our stocks go down, we freak out. When the bank account goes down, we freak out. But here's the thing. The fact is, all investments on this earth, no matter what you invest in, will fail, ultimately. They will fail. They are not eternal. They will fail. The only secure investment is to invest in people to know Jesus Christ. This is what we see. He talks about you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's referencing when Jesus returns and and all of the saints are gathered to Christ and all of a sudden you're going to see people that perhaps um, you invested in or your your resources were used to invest in and they, they came to know Christ and it's going to be this biggest family reunion ever. He's speaking about putting your, your time, your energy, your resources, stewarding them to, 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 to bring in an eternal return on investments. So the question is, is what motivates us to do this? Because at the end of the day, it's about a motivation of the heart. So what motivates us to do this? It's, it's, it's a person. It's Christ. Christ motivates us to do this. Christ was relationally motivated to bring us the eternal riches of eternal life in him. It wasn't like the eternal God, the triune God, was sitting in all for eternity, and they were like, man, I am so bored with you, Father and Holy Spirit. Like, this is so boring up here. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to, let's make some people. Or I'm, I'm lonely. It was nothing like that. It was just this idea of like this relationship had to pour out. Because it was, it, was, it was that good. It was that eternal. And here we see that Christ did that. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, became rich. So the question is, is who in your life are you becoming poor so that they could become rich in Christ? Who, who are you investing your time, your money, your resources in on your front line? I want you to think of that person. Just capture them in your mind. There's someone that you come across every single day. And you can spend a little more time with them. You could invest in them a little bit more. You could steward your resources a little bit more so that they could know Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, Brian, they are so far gone, it's just a waste of, it's like, it's a waste of my time. Or, I'm really getting nowhere with this person. Is this really going to matter much? The answer is yes. God wastes nothing in his economy. Investments take time to mature. And so it's time for us to start thinking eternally. And our life matters only when it's for the sake of the other. Jesus set the precedence for that. You know, I, when, I, when I'm like one of those pa- cancer patients or when I'm, I'm ready to go see Jesus face to face, I don't want to have any regrets. And... and I'm sure you're the same way. And we were, I was talking to this, this, this cancer patient, this guy in his 50s, dying of um, prostate cancer. He's, he's speaking to a group of pastors. And, and we're like, what is one thing that pastors need to know that you want them to know? And this, this guy is, we didn't know where he was at with, with Christ or anything. He says, don't lie to people about Jesus. Tell them. They need to know. And that was not prompted and I just thought to myself, wow, is this idea of investing in people to know eternal reality in Christ. He had no reason to lie to us. 
Finally, the third point, stewardship is single-minded in devotion. Stewardship shows the condition of your heart and who you really love. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then verse 15, he says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus goes straight to the heart. He's like, here's the thing. Either I sit at the throne of your heart, or money sits at the throne of your heart. You can't have both. Anything that attempts to synthesize those together is not right. Because you'll, you'll despise one and you'll love the other. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this story. There's a story by Leo Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's an interesting story. It's about this guy buys some land. And he looks at his neighbor who has a bigger piece of land. He says, I'm really not happy with my land. I'm going to buy my neighbor's land. And he looks at another neighbor. He realizes that they have bigger land. So he wants to buy that neighbor's land. And it just keeps going on and on until finally he talks to a, a tribal chief. And he wants to buy the tribal land. And the tribal chief says, here's, here's what I'll do. I will sell you the land that you could walk around in one day. So as much, as much land that you could walk around in one day, I will sell it to you. But you have to come directly at this point, And whatever you walk around, I'll sell it to you. He says, okay. So he starts to walk. And he wants to make his borders further and further out. But then he's noticing the sun's starting to go down. So he's freaking out a bit. And so he starts to push himself, and he pushes himself, and he pushes himself, until finally he gets to the point where he started from, and then he drops dead. And so the question is, how much land does a man need? And the answer is six feet. <laughs> but let's face it, for many of us, this is our life. For many of us, this is exactly what our life is. We've created this idol of wealth. We've deified it. We've created a practical theology around it, and we serve it with our lives until we die. We have to ask ourselves, to what end? And many of us justify this idolatry, saying, well, the more I make, the more I'm going to give. But statistics say that's generally not true. And we've bought into this lie that the one thing that you need in life to be happy as wealth. You could buy happiness. We've become slaves to this idol of wealth. And the thing that typifies this, especially in America, is the American prosperity gospel. We've, we've, we've created a theology around it. We've created this idea that, that God wants you to be, be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. That God wants you to have a happy life. That you can speak whatever you want into existence. And, we have, and we're, we're buying it hook, line, and sinker. People like Kenneth Copeland, like Joel Olstein, Todd White, they're selling it. And we're, we're grabbing onto it because it's speaking to an idolatry that we have. Yet you read Scripture and you see none of that. You're like, well, they speak Scripture. Yeah, they take it out of context. Let's get real here. The one thing we're really looking for, we're looking for love. We're looking for love. And we're trying to utilize our wealth for that. And it's going to fall short. We want to be loved for our own sake without impediments. 
We want a love with complete, a love with complete mutuality. We want a love that's never-ending. We want a love that's always increasing. And we attempt to fill it with these finite things, these, 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 this wealth, this, this bigger thing. We've created a theology, but, but it's temporary stuff. And it's going to fill every single time. What we really need to fill it with is an infinite God, an infinite Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. We put our faith in Him. He has filled us with this love. And because of that, because we have the love of Christ that dwells in us, we are eternally wealthy. And because of this, because we're eternally wealthy, stewardship is singularly focused on glorifying Christ as a response of receiving this love. We give because we have been given so much. We don't have to hold on to it anymore. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What is, what, what is, what is being said here? It's saying, you lack nothing. You don't, you don't have to keep pressing. You don't have to keep pressing anymore or looking for a way around it. You lack nothing in Christ. And instead of being slaves of wealth and money, we're called to be slaves of Christ. And when we understand this, it produces this, this freedom that allows us to look outside of ourselves to see how we can steward the wealth and the resources that God has given us in his eternal plan of salvation. How he's gathering his kingdom, extending his kingdom. And when we do that, when we're slaves of Christ, when we have that freedom, when we're, we're ready to give and just let go instead of grab, 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 we experience this joy in Christ. You know what I'm talking about? That joy. It's all right, you can amen. <laughs> this is why I'm excited. Later on uh, here soon, Pastor John's going to, uh, he's going to dedicate the pledge cards. That is an exciting thing. That is us as a people of God in faith saying, God, we are going to give this. And God's going to respond to that obedience. And it might not be the way that we think, but he'll respond to it. And, it's, and we're participating in this eternal plan that we might not be able to wrap our minds around. It's this mystery, this beautiful mystery. All right, let me, let me close up. What we need to do, we need to start recovering this everyday stewardship in our lives. This isn't about a one-time thing. I gave, I did, I, I did this or whatever. It's about, it's about a continual attitude of worship by giving and stewarding the things that God has given us. It's, a, it's about abandoning the American dream and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ in every part of who we are. And this time tomorrow, you're going to be sitting at a desk, you're going to be waiting for something, you're going to be wherever you're going to be, you're going to have your phone, or you're going to have your tablet, or you're going to be at a computer, and you're going to get bored, and you're going to say, what can I buy on Amazon? <laughs> What's in my cart? What's on my list, my wish list? And I want you to stop and think, do I really need this? And is there anyone that is lacking something that I could get them? This time tomorrow, you're going to be going to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or wherever you go to get your coffee. 
You're going to order the triple whatever with foam and whatever it is that you get. And I want you to stop. And I want you to think, is this the right usage for, for what God has given me? Or can I buy someone a cup of coffee? Maybe, that's, maybe that, that would be something good. This time tomorrow, you're going to say, we should go out. We should go out to eat. And I want you to think, well, maybe we should just go buy some groceries and invite people to come over to our house that we don't really know. So that's just something to think about and as we adopt this everyday stewardship and this attitude of worship to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your, your hard words in Scripture. We thank you for doing a work on our hearts. And I pray that you would help us change. I just pray for radical change in us. How, whatever that looks like in our individual lives. A radical change in us as a, as a community. Lord, we just want to live for you. So help us to do that in wisdom and boldness. So we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.